joined today by a special guest, Ed Glazer, professor of economics at Harvard University. Ed has published some of the world's leading research on cities and has written a wonderful book, Triumph of the City, How Our Greatest Invention Makes Us Richer, Smarter, Greener, Healthier, and Happier. Thrilled to have you join us today, Ed. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me on. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So, Ed, we started a Real Estate Addicts book club, and obviously our first book, it's a lot like the Oprah Winfrey book club in terms of its reach <laughs> and scale. But we certainly started with Triumph of the, of the City, which we really enjoyed. And so, uh, just a quick question, what, what would you recommend the second book of our uh, book club be? Well, it depends on where you want to go. Yeah. So, uh, one, op, uh, one possibility is Robert Schiller's Irrational Exuberance. And, mm. uh, you know, the, the first or the second chapter has, you know, just, just great stuff on sort of the history of real estate speculation in the U.S. And it sort of is, is a helpful book for thinking about the, the over-enthusiasm that can sometimes even get into a real estate addict's uh, head. Ooh. If you were going to do cities per se, uh, it's hard to beat uh, Jane Jacobs' Death and Life of Great American Cities. Of course, I have some, um, you know, uh, both deep admiration for uh, Jane Jacobs, but also some questions about her chapter on historic preservation, which I think misses some of the the downsides of uh, historic preservation. And then there's the possibility of one of the many great biographies of, of cities. One of the ones that I particularly love is Burroughs and Wallace's Gotham. But there are many others, and uh, that that would be one of those. Those would be the three ways that I I urge you to go. Excellent. Maybe we'll do each of those in succession. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, definitely. Did you want to talk about if he was going to release oh, an yeah, update to his book? If there is if there is an update coming or a second version, because uh, it was last published in 2012, we're, we're happy to write the forward. Real, real estate <laughs> I, I'm very grateful. Yeah. That's that's, sure. uh, that's, that's uh. <laughs> so so why real estate? So tell us a little bit about your background and how you stumbled into. Did you, do you always have a passion for real estate or? You know, you knew, we know you grew up in New York City and... My, my passion is for cities uh, and real estate is a critical part of, of cities, right? I mean, as an economist, I often stress that the real city is not the bricks and mortar, that the real city is the humanity that's connected uh, by urban density. But at the same time, uh, that bricks and mortar is so important for making uh, cities function. And, uh, you know, I think I sort of moved towards a more real estate orientation in my own work about 20 years ago when I started to realize the extent to which urban fortunes were being determined by things in real estate markets. So both the stickiness of real estate on the downside, so the fact that you had cities like Detroit or Cleveland, which were built right? During a period in which they were enormously productive, right? Detroit, probably the most productive place on the planet in 1950. And then that period of success was followed by decades of slow, painful decline. Well, one of the reasons why cities grow quickly and decline slowly is that real estate persists. And so, you know, by 1980, more than 90% of the homes in Detroit were valued at less than construction costs, but the city still remained because the homes still remain, because the real estate is durable. And then on the upside, right, we started to see, you know, starting really in the 70s, but I think I only really noticed it in the in the late 1990s, the extent to which some cities were succeeding and growing as they succeeded, like Houston or Dallas or Atlanta or Phoenix. And some cities were succeeding in the sense that their wages were going up, their incomes were going up, uh, their prices were going up, and yet they were adding remarkably few new homes. And that's 
Boston or San Francisco. And in those areas, it's really hard not to think that it's the limitations that the government chooses to impose on real estate developers that are at the crux of the way that development uh, shakes shakes out. And then, of course, we had the great real estate convulsion of the 2000 to 2012 period, and that was just too exciting to miss. Do you ever find that uh, people take the success of a city for granted? In other words, I've seen people when Amazon was competing for their new home say, we don't want that many jobs coming to Boston. Like we need to moderate growth and tap the brakes. And sometimes I feel like growth can't be that finely tuned and that you're totally right. When I was a kid growing up in New York City in the 1970s, uh, you know, the city's fortunes, most older, colder cities' fortunes felt like they they sat on the edge of a precipice, right? And any job that they could possibly get was desperately wanted. Now, we've had 30 great years of urban resurgence, at least for some cities, for the Bostons, for the New Yorks, for the San Francisco's, for educated, highly dynamic cities. And that's led to a certain amount of complacency. That's led to a sense in which we don't need to fight for new jobs, which we don't need to make our urban area attractive to new businesses or attractive to real estate developers. And I think that's, you know, when you think about the the discontents that currently royal many cities, that's in some sense a product of urban success, right? If if we weren't, you know, we weren't so successful, we wouldn't be willing to gripe so much about the success that we do have or the imperfections of that success. Do you feel that by becoming complacent, that it's going to ultimately potentially hurt cities like the Boston's, New York's, and San Francisco's? Or do you think that there's been so much growth and so many jobs in so many various industries that that are here that it's tough to kind of move the needle? I think unquestionably it's going to hurt a little. It's a question about how much it's going to hurt. And I would say it's not as if I have seen cities, even, you know, de Blasio's New York act in ways that are sort of deeply harmful. And just to repeat that, I have not seen them act act in a way that's deeply harmful. But unquestionably, they also have had other priorities other than growth. And I think in the future, what's going to matter is whether or not these administrations go down a a more redistributive path, a more anti-growth path, a more anti-job path, or whether or not they sort of talk a little bit about it, but are, are, you know, ultimately sort of constrained by by the limitations on city government. But I do think in general, it's probably right when you think about the, the discontent of modern cities. In some sense, it's a sign that city governments haven't caught up with the private sector. And we can get into these individual problems later. But I think the broader picture is that this has always been the case, that like cities move first, the private sector energy, the building happens first, and then inevitably the city governments end up playing catch up. And yet I think some things have changed so that we are having more trouble catching up than we have in the past. It seems as if in many metropolitan areas and even some of the suburbs, there's almost an anti-zoning or anti-development feeling. And yet in other certain cities, they've abolished single family homes. Do you know why certain cities act a certain way? And, you know, is, is one right or wrong? Or, or abolish the allow, allowing single family homes as a, uh, a, a use mm-hmm. to encourage more density. It's, if you look at sort of Detroit versus Chicago versus Boston, it's hard to say that one is unequivocally better. I mean, it's, it's, fundamentally true that America's greatness reflects in part the variety of different cities of different types of neighborhoods that people can live in. And it's a great thing that we have different types of cities, that we have some cities that are large and sprawling and inexpensive and some cities that are, you know, more protective of this, their historical heritage. 
That being said, uh, I am pretty certain that I think that Boston and San Francisco should be a little bit more permissive on on zoning, right? Um, I mean, every time you say no to a new project, you're saying no to a family that that could benefit by living in the city, and you're making sure that those people who do live in the city end up paying more for housing than they otherwise would. So I would love to see Boston be a little bit more permissive on housing, but I don't think there's sort of one right answer that all cities should, you know, ban single family uh, detached housing or uh, should require only single family detached housing. I think the the, the right answer lies in in respecting the variety of, of urban areas and, and reveling in it. Sure. And, and in your book, you mentioned that it would be wrong of cities to essentially just say everything is historic or everything must be preserved. You 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 feel, or at least at the time that you wrote the book, you felt that there should be a cap on that. Do you feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think it's a, it's a terrible mistake for a city to freeze itself in amber and to not change. And, you know, you look around Boston, right? You look at the, the vast number, let's say, of, of triple-deckers, right? Which was a fantastic way of providing affordable housing for working-class Bostonians in 1890 or 1900. How can it still be a fantastic way for providing affordable housing in, in 20, 2020? I think that that sort of is is just a there's just a more general point in that, which is, you know, history shouldn't be a straitjacket. We need to preserve some, some things. You know, I love uh, I love the dialogue between H. H. Richardson, and I. M. Pei, and in Copley Square, Copley Place. But but it's you know even to get that dialogue, you needed to preserve H. H. Richardson, which I think is well worth preserving. But you also needed to allow Pei to build the, the Hancock Tower. So you need you need both of those things going on at the same time. For sure. We had an urban planner join us a couple episodes back, and he said something to the effect of, uh, you can build a modern structure next to the Sistine Chapel, but you better make sure that architecture is on par and as great in its own (laughs) sense as that was in its day. We go to a lot of meetings and community meetings, and we'll hear things like, uh, we have an affordability crisis in the city. I want an absolute moratorium on new development. The reason for the affordability crisis is because of the new construction and new developments occurring in my neighborhood. Tell us, if is that logic um, flawed? Fatally. Yeah. You know, there's no repealing the laws of supply and demand. You've seen that knee-jerk reaction, there, right? Absolutely, and and it's it's in Jane Jacobs' death and life. In fact, mm. that she looks at old buildings and notices that they're cheaper than new buildings, which induces her to argue that the way to preserve affordability is to know is to not let anyone replace old buildings with new buildings. Well, how well did that work out in in Greenwich Village, right? Which has had a historic preservation district for 50 years, and is a place where townhouses started five million dollars, and you need to be either a, a hedge fund manager or an NYU professor to live there. You've got to allow more building and real building, not just, you know, pencils heading toward the sky that can accommodate one billionaire on every floor. You need to make sure you permit plenty of new construction of reasonably sized units for ordinary income people or else your city is going to risk journeying into a boutique town that's affordable only to the wealthy. So how do we educate the public on that? Well, have you thought about running a podcast? Seriously, though, like, you know, you, you stand in front of these community groups and, you know, I'm sure if you handed out tomatoes, they'd be throwing them at you. So, you know, it's it's difficult, you know, for us to stand up and say, well, we want to build, you know, a six unit or an eight unit building or even a 20 unit building. And, you know, they don't I don't think they understand it. So, you know, what what is it? What is a rational way to help educate the public? 
Well, I mean, one thing that, that is helpful is to, is to reassure them that change is unlikely to be as terrifying as they've convinced themselves that it's, that it's going to be, right? So that's, that's sort of the first, the first thing. Um, I think it's, it's possible to win the argument that new growth promotes affordability. I mean, you know, you point to cities like Houston and Atlanta and Dallas, which have by and large stayed affordable because they have unleashed the private developers. But for many of those community groups, they're not, you know, particularly if they're homeowners, affordability isn't a good thing. Affordability is a bad thing, right? The last thing they want is the value of their home to become more affordable. They want it to become less affordable. So it's very, very hard to ever win that argument with, with local community groups. I, I think it does make, make sense to like poke fun at some of their arguments. I mean, the, the sort of environment, the suburban environmentalists who claim that blocking new development mm. is somehow rather good for the environment when in fact all that it does is it pushes people further out away from the center, center core and induces more driving and, and more eating up of natural space. But I think the only way that, that real change happens is if other stakeholders other than community groups get a say. In some sense, this is a, um, a sort of an American tragedy that over the past 50 years, we've empowered insiders in lots of different settings. And, um, you know, whether or not it's, it's local retailers who want to block licensing for new, uh, new shops or local homeowners who want to block new construction. And, you know, no one's speaking for the outsiders. And it, it, unless we have sort of more of the outsiders at the table, young people who haven't bought homes, people who haven't yet moved into the, the city, we're never going to get change. Um, I do think things are somewhat more hopeful at the law when you talk about sort of large cities, then you talk about bedroom suburbs because large cities, businesses are at the table and businesses want more affordable homes so they get to pay less for their, their workers. Banks want more building. Developers want more building. The, the construction trades want more building. So there are more people at the table. But in the leafy suburbs or if you're just talking to a community group of local residents, boy, I, I have never, I've never won one of those arguments in my life. I, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm not too hopeful about how one could possibly do so. It, it, it's almost... A parallel to the climate change argument. You'll never change somebody's mind on that. So yeah, I, I almost right. wonder if it's never going to happen. But you you brought up a good point. And I think one of the arguments that we hear is the stress on infrastructure. So if you magically increase housing stock 20%, is there going to be an extra 20% demand on the infrastructure? And how does a city that doesn't have good infrastructure, uh, i.e. public transit, respond to something like that? Right. So I've long uh, advocated that if, if you could replace the seven-year delay on a new project with a, a simple infrastructure charge, that would seem like a reasonable thing to do. If you tell me that your, your new buildings really aren't paying for the infrastructure, then I, I would tell you your property taxes aren't high enough. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of the point of having property taxes. And that's, that's one way of sort of building in the charge is just having a, a, a higher property tax. I think actually Massachusetts, when it basically took things into place to make sure that the, that the property taxes are going to be the same for new and old buildings, which has a certain fairness to it. But that actually discouraged building new stuff because the older model had been one in which they essentially taxed the older buildings less than the newer buildings. And that cre created a little bit of pressure to, uh, to build more. You know, when you think about Boston and New York, it's fairly, you know, hard to make the case that the infrastructure is, is the the problem. And there's a lot of fantastic infrastructure in Boston. And, you know, if, if you created more funding mechanisms for the MBTA, for the Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority, you know, they could accommodate. I just feel that public transit in other countries, you know, Japan and Madrid, they just, they, there's so much, it's so much better than the public transit in the United States. And why, why is that? Well, uh, in some cases, their costs are much lower. 
the cost of building much lower. Hard to imagine anything that's more expensive than the Second Avenue subway in Manhattan, right? And and I'm not sure we fully understand why building infrastructure is as expensive as it is. I'm part of an infrastructure effort at the National Bureau of Economic Research that is sort of aimed at this. But it's striking when you look at the work of, of Leah Brooks and Zach Liskow, look at the cost of building a mile in, in the highway over the last 50 years. It's gone up enormously, despite the fact that labor costs actually haven't gone up in real terms. The, the cost of materials has gone down in real terms, but it's just become more and more expensive to build. One hypothesis is that this is, again, the community opposition in practice, that you know, what's happened is that roads have become more wiggly which may be a response to, to um, mm-hmm. you know, local pressures to, to accommodate things. There have been more sound walls, which may be a good thing, but it, it certainly does push up uh, prices as well. Um, it's also true in some cases that, that these countries subsidize more. And that's a real public policy question. I mean, I, I am not convinced that fast trains everywhere is in any sense always the right answer for anything. I mean, there's an old joke that 40 years of transportation economics at Harvard can boil, be boiled down to four words, bus good, train bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is not to say that we, you know, we probably do want to improve some of our, our, our train service. Uh, certainly Amtrak in the Northeast Corridor would be an area in which one could look at spending uh, some money and making it uh, making it better. But also there's a lot to be thought about in terms of using new technologies to make public transit better. So think about, you know, buses on dedicated lanes, autonomous buses on dedicated lanes, right? So if they're not driving with other, other vehicles, maybe the, autonom- the autonomy is easier to, to handle. So I think we want to be creative about public transit. And even if we don't think that, you know, the, the full Japanese model is feasible in the U.S., we surely can do better than we currently are doing. And, and I do think that part of that is thinking that, that about how buses can deliver more, that in fact, buses are the ugly stepchildren of American transportation, and they shouldn't be. There's a lot to love about the flexibility and affordability of the bus. You know, another thing that contributes to cost, rising costs of construction, in my opinion, is regulatory creep. So it seems to never go the other direction. I'm doing a building on a private way right now and just came to find out that I need to expand the width of the private way to 20 feet. And and, and so the logic is it, it's the the private way is all but of 100 feet long and they want to make sure that a fire truck can can come down that road. There's seven other properties on this private way, but now those costs will be borne entirely on me as the developer. I'll need to get cooperation from each neighbor on that private way to widen that road. How real is regulatory creep? Uh, it's pretty real. Yeah. I mean, you know, the nature of regulations in the U.S. is they almost never have sunset clauses. Mm-hmm. So we always add new things. We never take things away. There is no use of serious cost-benefit analysis in any form of local land use regulation. Never once has anyone said, look, there is a real, there is a real fire risk. We do mm-hmm. actually want to think a little bit about this. But is the probability of this and the, the downsides of this sufficiently high to, to offset these costs? No one, no one went through that calculation. And so I can't say that it's wrong for them to require that. Yeah. But, but they certainly haven't run the numbers to be sure that it's right. Has anything changed in the last you know, seven or eight years since your book was published that, you know, that you've talked about in your book that you might, you know, change, either change your perspective on or anything new that you might want to add. Or you feel more strongly about yeah. sort of like natural experiments, maybe Trump's mortgage interest deduction, for an example. You know, that's right. So th- th- there's a lot, of, a lot of things that change. I think the overall, I don't think the basic message of the book would have changed, but, but, Cities are under stress right now, and a lot of the sense of optimism has 
has has decreased in the public as a whole. I think I might therefore have a tone which is more, I, I know you're depressed about cities right now, but you know, remember how many great things are happening there and have happened there over the uh, over the past 30 years. I would, if anything, probably push even more on the view that new construction is the right way to deal with gentrification problems. So I would I would spend more time on the crises of gentrification and emphasize even more that, that gentrification is particularly uh, fearsome as a fight because you're fighting this zero-sum battle over a fixed stock of real estate. And if you accommodated uh, newer, wealthier people who wanted to move into a city by allowing them to build more, you'd have much less displacement in other uh, areas, I would be more worried. So one thing that's come out is the data provided by my colleagues, Raj Chetty, Nathan Hendren, and, and John Friedman on opportunity, on the upward mobility of people living in cities. And this is for a group of kids that are born between 78 and 83. And urban opportunity looks pretty bad by their measures. That in fact, people who are living in cities, people, kids who are growing up in cities end up doing significantly worse. People who live in dense areas in cities do worse. People who live in who close to the, the central business district do worse. People who, of course, live in central city school districts do worse. And I think that's not entirely absent. I mean, I do certainly say things in the book about how our public city school systems are failing the kids. But this feels like more of an existential threat in the sense that like cities... Urban inequality is not something we should be ashamed of, right? Cities are unequal places because they attract rich people and they attract poor people. And they attract poor people with, you know, uh, better social services, with public transportation, and with the promise of some form of, of economic viability. But the critical part of that is economic inequality in cities is only acceptable if cities are serving their historic mission of transforming poor people into rich people. And while the data on uh, the, the adults is reasonably positive. The data on the kids is really worrisome. And I think, you know, if you ask me sort of what's the sort of largest mission, we were talking about city governments that are failing to catch up. The largest mission is to try and make sure that kids, particularly growing up in, in highly segregated, high poverty neighborhoods, actually get some, you know, get some better, better chances than they currently had. And I think one thing that's crucial about this is if you think about, and there's been some great cell phone data that's come out of, of MIT's Media Lab and elsewhere, is that the adults, even adults who live in relatively segregated neighborhoods end up living fairly integrated lives, right? They go to work where they interact with, you know, rich people or better educated people, they mingle, but the kids, the kids don't. The kids are in the neighborhood and they go to the schools. And that's, that's in some sense that the challenge is how to break the, that segregation curse. Do you have any thoughts on, on what, you know, municipalities should do to kind of help fix that problem? Well, sure. So, I think one one big thing is to rethink certain aspects of public education. Uh, I think reforming the public schools themselves is pretty hard. I mean, I, I sat on the advisory board of the Gates Foundation's domestic branch focused on American education for 10 years. And while that was a great experience, I think it wasn't a particularly uh, uplifting experience in the sense of feeling optimistic mm -hmm. about the pace yeah. of change. 20 years ago, I think we all hoped that reformers like Joel Klein in New York were going to be able to work miracles uh, quickly. And while certainly he was a very effective leader, the miracles didn't happen quickly. They, they seemed to be happening very slowly. Um, one possibility is to do more after school in summers to do sort of vocational training that wraps around traditional schooling. So, and part of the beauty about vocational training is it can be sourced from external providers. It can be sourced from, you know, construction unions. It can be sourced from private entities. It can be sourced from the public schools, from community colleges. And then you can evaluate, in the case of vocational training as opposed to traditional schooling, you can evaluate whether or not someone learned how to become a plumber immediately 
right? You can learn whether or not it worked. So you can have fee for service that's really pretty, pretty directly tied to the skills that you're wanting to do. So I, I really think we need to be relentlessly creative, ruthlessly pragmatic, and always committed to evaluating what we're doing as quickly as possible and then changing what doesn't work. And I think that's one of the challenges with, like you said, you know, governments catching up. They take, they take too long to catch up. And it's, it's almost like they can't evaluate in real time for some reason. And I just, I don't understand why. It's very hard. And part of one of the things that's difficult is that the, the best tool we have for evaluating public policies are randomized controlled trials or experiments. And I would certainly say more about that in the, in the book. This, the revolutionary nature of, of randomized controlled trials in the social sciences was highlighted, of course, by the Nobel Prize being given this year to my colleague Michael Kramer and, and Abhishek Banerjee and Esther DeFlo. The slight problem is it's hard for political leaders to ever admit that they experimented, right? It's hard for them, first of all, to admit that they're ignorant. Right? And I don't mean that their ignorance is special. My ignorance is there too. I don't know what will work either. But we all have to admit our ignorance before we make, <laughs> we make progress. So that's a hard thing for a politician to do. And then if you do an experiment and it doesn't work, that becomes a huge political problem. So for example, lots of police departments engage in little experiments all the time. They put a few cops there, they put a few cops there, but you never hear them admit it. You never hear, because like if, if they did an experiment and somebody got robbed, it's like a huge problem. So it's, it's, it's very hard for them to admit for experiments because they're so risk averse. And that's one of the challenges of public entities rather than private entities, right? Tech companies are in a mood which is, you know, let's try something. If we become a unicorn, that's fantastic, but we expect 90% of the time to go bankrupt. No city government can function like that. There was a comment that you had made uh, that I thought was rather interesting about equally educated individuals in and out of the city and the ones that all constant, basically there was a study where education considered the same folks in the city are more or less 50% more productive. I thought that was rather interesting. Is that a why, is that why people are drawn to the city or I guess help us understand what you meant by that? So what you're referring to are what economists call agglomeration economies, which are the economic benefits of being in the maelstrom of economic activity. The typical estimate for the U.S. is as the density or metropolitan area size doubles of an area, productivity goes up about between 5 and 6%, something like that. So if it goes up a, a, a lot, then you can get to your 50% number, but it has, to, it has to rise a lot to get to 50%. But that's, those estimates are typically holding individual education, individual experience, constant. The effects are bigger for more educated people. So more educated people typically benefit more in terms of their uh, observed wages from being in a city and for, for more experienced people. And what you see in terms of the data is that there's a, a steeper wage tilt for living in a city. So people who come to cities don't necessarily experience all that wage gain overnight, but what they have is year by year, month by month, they experience faster wage growth, which is, I think, most compatible with the view that cities are forges of human capital, places where we get smart by being around other smart people. Is this one reason why people come to cities? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, but there are many others. Uh, you know, over the past 40 years, we've seen the rise of the consumer city, cities that, that, you know, do well, first and foremost, because people like living there. And of course, that goes along with the rise of reverse commuting, right? The idea that in the 1970s, you would have thought it was a sensible thing to live in downtown Manhattan and commute to a suburb to work, right? That would have been seen as being a crazy thing. Now there are thousands and thousands of people who do just that because they want the fun of being in a city. Mm. So in terms of real dollars, if everything is kind of held constant, is it more advantageous to reside in a city because you have that higher wage that offsets your higher cost of living? Or d does one side win versus the other, like the suburb versus urban? So this is a bit of a digression, but the basic core concept of 
the economics of cities, of urban economics, is the idea of a spatial equilibrium, which is basically the same old idea that there's no such thing as a, you know, as, as a free lunch. There, 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 are, uh, there aren't supposed to be $100 bills just lying around for you to pick them up. And so typically when we look at cities, you get higher wages, but you pay higher prices to, to live there. And those things offset each other. When you see the wages being higher than the prices would merit them, then usually there's a pretty good explanation for that, like, you know, something's wrong with the city. Right. So high real wages are typically associated with whether it's too cold or whether it's too hot or other urban disamenities. And when you see the reverse prices that are too high relative to the wages. Right. That's coastal California. Right. That's that, that's places that have other amenities that, that push those mm-hmm. prices up. So I think it's, it's wrong to interpret my book or, or any part of it as suggesting that any individual can, you know, t- can, can actually do better by moving one place or another. After all, I'm an economist. I'm not a lifestyle consultant, right? It's not a, uh, and every, <laughs> indi- every individual's answer is going to be different, but there's still a lot to like about cities. I, I actually have one other uh, question as well. So let's talk about Detroit and can we compare it to Silicon Valley? And the comparison I want to make is when Detroit was in its heyday, no one foresaw that the industry would ever shut down. Would we be... Um, ignorant to think that Silicon Valley may not suffer the same consequence as Detroit, or is that just not a, a fair comparison? It's it's it is a fair comparison. It is something that's worth worrying about. There are similarities and there are differences between Detroit and Silicon Valley. So the similarities are they both have a bit of an industrial monoculture, and that is certainly dangerous. Uh, another similarity, which was not true historically, is that Detroit is becoming, sorry, Silicon Valley is becoming more dominated by a few large employers. And that's also dangerous. So historically, you know, Silicon Valley in the 1960s was, you know, a genius on every street corner and, you know, lots of small little startups and that, that gave it its, its energy. It's a great book called Regional Advantage, which also is something that could be on your book list uh, where mm-hmm. Annalise Saxenian compares uh, Silicon Valley and, and Boston's Route 128. And she argues that the energy in Silicon Valley comes from having those small, scrappy entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs. Well, it doesn't seem so scrappy and entrepreneurial anymore. And we've seen that evolution in the case of Detroit as well. So Detroit, Detroit was full of small, scrappy entrepreneurs in, in 1895, and it wasn't by 1930. So those are, are things that are similar that should make us worry. Now, what's different, um, and what's different is not always in the upside for, uh, for, for Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley is very dominated by very high human capital people. It's a very well-educated area. That's partially about you know, the industry. That's partially about the fact that it's people seem to like its climate. Climate is a luxury good and it, it attracts highly educated people. And third, it's because of the housing policies, because it, it, they don't make it possible to build inexpensive housing for you know, working class people. All three of those things combine to make it highly skilled. And those skills tend to make places resilient. So if you look at which industrial areas were able to reinvent themselves after the 1970s, it tended to be the places with lots of skills, like Minneapolis relative to the city's places with fewer skills. Or for that matter, Seattle, right? I mean, remember in 1971, two jokers put up a billboard on the on the highway leaving Seattle asking the last person to leave the city to please turn out the lights. Because just as no one could imagine uh, Detroit with a smaller General Motors, no one could imagine a Seattle with a smaller Boeing. But Seattle, of course, magnificently reinvents itself. And that reinvention is built on human capital. So I think there's a lot to dislike about the fact that Silicon Valley doesn't, do, doesn't end up employing more less skilled Americans. I think that's sort of an, an existential issue in terms of the U.S. as a whole. But if you asked about sort of what, what that means for the resilience of the area, having a lot of really smart people in the area is kind of a really good thing for the, for the long-run durability of, of the place. Do you think cities like Detroit are salvageable at this point? Oh, sure. I'm an eternal optimist on, on this. <laughs> I, I think Detroit is, is likely to continue right-sizing itself, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's got to continue its process, as I say, in the book of shrinking to greatness. 
it has huge issues. I mean, the, one of the problems that our older, colder cities did is, is they, they essentially took on these large legacy obligations, both in terms of infrastructure, but also even more obviously in terms of things like public pension uh, mm. liabilities. Chicago's having that issue. Huge too, right issue, right? And uh, the problem is that, that sort of, if you want to think about a city as, a, as being similar to a person, right, what you're supposed to do is save during the good years and then have extra cash for the lean years, right? The problem is these people will borrow during the good years. They're not these people. These cities will borrow during the, good, during the good years and consequently they're facing their lean years with a huge debt overhang, which is the last thing you want to do is be facing, you know, your 77th birthday and still be sitting on some vast amount of debt that you accumulated during your 50s. In Triumph of the City, you liken cities to libraries and you, you suggest that a good library needs a, a mix of uh, fiction, nonfiction, biographies, autobiographies, et cetera. And from our experience as developers, it seems like everyone, we, a lot of folks suggest that because they only like uh, fiction books, that their entire neighborhood should be all, all that style. Where that manifests itself is my family has three cars, so you need to provide three to one parking ratios. Or I like three bedrooms, and therefore I'd like to see your unit mix skew more towards 1,200 plus square foot units. How real is that? And how is that? How do we combat that? Well, what you've, what you've got it is sort of the fundamental difference between the architect's perspective and the economist's perspective, where urban planners sit somewhere between the two, right? So the architect is trying to come up with an ideal building and is a visionary about what that building should, should be. The economist looks at the world and says, boy, people are different. Isn't it a good thing to have lots of different things that are out there? Isn't it a good thing to have, you know, some places where people own three cars and places where people uh, live, in, live in small buildings, uh, live in small apartments? So I think really, you know, this heterogeneity is, is a crucial part of cities. I think cities need to be archipelagos of neighborhoods that offer different uh, opportunities. I think always in life, we should resist the tendency to think that everyone should live just like us. Right, that in it's fact, hard, right? It is hard. We all live in our own world. That's right. To a world uh, horseradish. Uh, the world is horseradish. Uh, that's right. And so we think that our we've convinced ourselves that our way is best, and so it should be best for other people as well. But it's just not. It's just not so. So I there mean, was an expression uh, in the field of dreams: if you build it, they will come. But that's not necessarily good for cities either. And I, a good case would be a city, maybe like you said, that's right sizing. But are there cities where we should just keep building and and take away all restrictions? certain scenarios that way? You know, there's a line from my colleague, Marty Feldstein, my, my, who, who died over the summer, which was, you don't necessarily need to know for public policy where the boat needs to land. You just need to know the direction it should be starting in. And uh, I don't need to answer the question whether or not I think Boston should look entirely like Houston in terms of its, its land use stuff. Because we are so far from there and we are so unlikely to get anywhere near there. I just know that where we currently are, I want it to be a bit less regulated. Okay, so that's the hope. In terms of, of neighborhoods, I think I certainly would, um, you know, again, I would get rid of a lot of any sort of historic concerns about things like, you know, uh, the, the, the glazed brick uh, buildings on, on the Upper East Side of New York or from many triple-deckers. I would, I'd be much less, less, you know, likely to preserve those, air, those things for historic reasons. And I, I think I would be, you know, whereas I have more feeling about historic preservation in, in the sort of really older parts of the cities in, in Beacon Hill and so forth. What about, you know, forward thinking? You know, a lot of times we talk to people and they're like, well, that's we, in five years, it's going to be this. And in, in 10 years, should people be looking much further out in terms of how 
urban centers should be built and developed um, from a strategic standpoint. You know, the auto- you were talking about autonomous buses. You know, what about autonomous autonomous vehicles? You know, in fifty years, is everyone going to get around via? It, it's an funny. automated vehicle. We, we do it for sustainability now, right? If there's a flood zone and we think that the water levels are rising, we're making very certain precautions for our buildings for 20 plus years, but yet there's no consideration seemingly for automated vehicles. Well, we certainly should be planning for change. That certainly is right. And uh, in some senses, that, that often creates the value for flexibility. So in the case of building parking lots and buildings that can be, you know, reconverted to something else and thinking about that from the beginning or floor plans that can be changed around, apartment walls that can be removed, sort of that flexibility is obvious. By the way, that's also a case for the bus over the train. Bus routes are enormously flexible. And if you don't, if the bus isn't working out, you can put cars or something else on that, on that space, whereas train tracks are eternal. Exactly what will play out in autonomous vehicles, of course, is very hard. I mean, and the part of the problem is you need to predict the public policy response. So the biggest barrier to autonomous vehicles is likely to be public regulation. Not all of that is, is bad. And the, in fact, I think in unregulated autonomous vehicles could well make urban traffic worse and could make cities less uh, mobile because the, you know, if one thing we've learned from transportation research, it's that human behavior responds to changes. You build more highways, you get more drivers. And that's the fundamental law of highway traffic by Gilles Duranton and Matthew Turner. And if you're going to make it a lot less costly for people to sit in traffic, guess what? More people are going to be willing to sit in traffic and they're not going to want to go on the subway instead. So it may well be that the revolutionary potential of autonomous vehicles may well be limited by by bad public policy. And of course, the natural, the natural response to that is to have public policies that actually involve real-time congestion pricing, which you can easily implement on, on autonomous vehicles from the beginning. So you, you pay exactly for the price, and so that pushes back on the tendency to overuse. Yeah, you mentioned certain cities like London did this, and it had great results. I think it was a 20 or 30% immediate reduction in, in congestion. So I guess the question begs itself, should cities be doing this more? And, and should those funds... As a follow-up, should those funds then go strictly towards public transportation projects? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it's, it was a crucial part of Ken Livingston's sales job of congestion pricing that he targeted those funds to public transportation. That, that was sort of a crucial element in selling this to the public. And in fact, it was quite helpful for um, Ken Livingston making this case that Ken was Red Ken. That Ken was, you know, a diehard socialist and he was embracing a market mechanism, not because it was good for rich people, but because it was good for poor people. And part of the way he made that case was saying that this funding was going to be paid by rich drivers and was going to fund buses that were going to be traveled by poor people. That being said, you know, I, there's also part of me, which is just, which just says, let's allocate the money to the highest and best uses. And if you tell me that, you know, funding a pre-K program is going to be more productive than spending more on public transportation, I'm open to that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to be. Uh, to be clear about. But it is certainly true that it's very, very hard to get these things through. London, Sweden, Oslo, Singapore. Now there's some sense that something will happen in New York in a couple of years, but it's not clear what exactly the form of that will take. Politically, it, it seems that it's much easier to impose a price on a new piece of infrastructure than an old infrastructure. So you build a new highway, people will accept a toll on it. You have a road that's always been free and you try to toll it, people object like crazy. It's a little bit of the same aversion to change that's related to opposition to new construction, actually. It's not totally different psychologically, I think. So that really argues that anytime you build new infrastructure, you want to make sure it's congestion price from the beginning. And as you start rolling out autonomous vehicles, you want to make sure that they have some form of congestion pricing from the beginning. We talked about this 
a little bit before we started recording, but uh, curious your thoughts on why uh, there is not a a lobby or a, a, a group which advocates for some of these more ur- ideas that an urbanist would um, would put forth and and developers would would favor. Well, I think it doesn't necessarily. I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons for this. I mean, first of all, we should we should highlight that there is there is at least one group, right? There are the Yimbies. There are the Yes yeah. in My Backyard group. Now they're small. But, you know, from my perspective, if you told me 20 years ago that there would be any group that lobbied for this and thought this stuff was exciting and important, I would have not believed it. And in some sense, I, you know, it's like, you know, you see a dog playing chess, you don't ask how he's going to do against Bobby Fischer is the old, is the old line. So I, I'm, really, I'm really delighted and thrilled that there's anything going on in this. And I love the, I love the Yimbies, uh, unsurprisingly. Why is there not a more corporate uh, supported group. I think one reason for that is that y- y- this case is easier to make if you're not actually a developer, right? So mm-hmm. in, in the public in the public sphere, it looks better if you don't have a financial interest in this, if you're actually advocating for this because you actually think it's good for the city, not because mm-hmm. you're going to make money off it. And I think it's also true, and I'm not going to name any names, uh, but there are, you know, some of the more powerful developers has have become powerful because the existing system works for them. And so they actually don't have an incentive to train to change the system because they figured out how to game it. We talk about this a lot just as it relates to Boston. Would we be better off uh, with a, uh, the, the current zoning code requires variances for everything. Each project is reviewed one by one by one. Or would we be better off financially if we made a more liberal and true zoning code, which says like, this is what c- can be built. It's, it's very realistic. And now play, here's right. the rules. No exceptions. Go play. Right. And so I, I agree with you that I think a lot of developers have done very well over time with the the former rules and yeah it, it, I mean if you think about Boston's variant system I mean it's so it's so inimical to to getting fast development done I mean you really need some sense of what's an as of right project and there's just no reason why you have to have this constant ad hoc process where everything is debated and as we know huge numbers of these variances actually are too far relative to the legal rules. I mean, you're not supposed to be fundamentally at odds with the original plan, and yet the original plan would leave us back in 1670 in some <laughs> kind of way, in a, in a way that's <laughs> totally impractical, which means that any neighbor who can actually get standing to challenge the case can, can block it, which basically means that every neighbor has veto pro- power mm-hmm. on every project, which is, mm-hmm. which is a crazy way to run a development system. So I am hoping and dreaming that, that uh, our, our good friends at the Boston, uh, used to be the Boston Redevelopment Authority. Now it's the Boston Planning and Development the Planning and Development, BPDA, BPDA <laughs> uh, that will we'll change this and we'll create something that has more as of right, as of more as of right building. Yeah, some of the oppositions that, that we hear are, you know, it's bizarre. It's like, oh, the people moving in, they're not, you know, the old school residents and, you know, uh, you know, are you planning to live here? We hear that sometimes and it's just not feasible. And, and you want to go back and say, well, who built your house, right? And and generally they're saying, well, somebody else built it. Well, you need developers, right? And developers spur industry and and really drive the economy. And unfortunately, development is something where it's cyclical. And, or not well, it is cyclical. Yeah, but it's, it's all, cyclical. It's cyclical, but it's also a point in time, right? So these aren't long-term jobs. You constantly need development in order to constantly employ all of the trades. And and I don't think the population in general may understand those who are more like the quote unquote nibby type individuals may understand that you're not just doing it for yourself. I mean, obviously you have to put food on your plate, but you're, you're helping employ dozens of other people and on the bigger projects, hundreds, if not thousands. Well, the cyclical element is harmful. It's, it's difficult in terms of this because, you know, I, I sort of, 
2005, I mean, I sort of remember this from 2004 to 2006 when I was sort of engaged in various housing reform efforts in Boston. That so you're going along, you're trying to make things the political process soon. And then of course the housing market crash happens. And then after the housing market crash, no one wants to talk about reforming to make it easier to build or to make prices lower. And so you got to wait for things to heat up again before. And then of course, you're not going to have a long enough window to, to actually push through reform again. So it's it, the, the constantly moving target makes things particularly difficult for reform. Mm-hmm. Well, and it goes back to what you said earlier in, in the podcast where, you know, it takes a long time for governments to catch up to the private sector. It does. It does. And that's in, a, so like, and, and the cyclicality makes it harder, right? Because the, the, if you've got a problem, let's say clean water in the late 19th century, that problem is not going away unless there's a major public intervention, unless you start building some aqueducts and some sewers, right? So it's, it's there, it's glaring you, people are dying of cholera and it's, it's constant. And so you've got to respond to it. With housing prices, well, they're up for four years, but then they crash for a couple of years. And so it's disappeared. And so it, it, all that reform disappears. And so that the changing nature of it, the moving target makes things particularly hard to generate sustained momentum for policy reform. You would think that it would be easier for policy reform during a recession than it is during the boom, but it's just me. The attention goes completely elsewhere. And remember, right. we spent all of 2007 to 2009 hoping that we could push prices up artificially, as yeah. if that was somehow yeah. a desirable thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shall we uh, jump into a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? Sure, why not? Any other questions? No, I think, I right. think that'd be good. Do you know the uh, rules? So this is a game we borrowed from Tyler Cowen. But we'll just introduce a term, a concept, an idea, and you tell us whether you think it's overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated, and a, and a quick explanation of, of perhaps why. I'll kick it off with uh, one that's uh, uh, mansion taxes. So we recently saw this in Boston with a uh, 2% tax on anything over $2 million. Are these uh, policies overrated? O- over, overrated. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the, the, the basic... The basic in- impact is you want to charge people for the taxes that are commensurate with the services that they're providing, that they're requiring from the city. And if you think those mansions are requiring a huge amount of extra services, then I can see that. But it doesn't feel to me like, again, it's one of these things which fits in the early thing that it's not, it's, it's a, it's not a good thing, but it's not egregious. I mean, it's not likely to, it's, it's less problematic than let's say a straight millionaire's tax would be because the people would move out more easily. But how about opportunity zones? Oh, overrated. We're going to have some underrated. I, I, actually, I, I actually have a new paper which shows that not only did uh, that the opportunity zones actually don't seem to have pushed up housing prices in the affected areas. So this is joint with uh, David uh, Wessel and Kevin Chen. Now, it's a little bit early to tell. So uh, I think it's very important when you, if you go to the, get that paper to sort of be aware that, you know, the change happened in the middle of 2000 and uh, 18, and we've only got 2018 data at the micro level um, to enable us to do this. But it certainly doesn't appear to be that there's anything that's that's really positive. And in fact, in residential areas, since we're looking at residential prices, the impact appears to be negative. And that's not crazy in the sense that what an opportunity zone does is it subsidizes more supply, right? And subsidizing more supply doesn't push prices up; it pushes prices down, as we've been as we've been talking about. Now, lots of times you like that, but often these areas were chosen not because there was huge demand for these area for these areas, but the reverse. So it may well be that that the impact of subsidizing supply in these areas is actually depressing prices. And partially, this is a, a, a reminder that in a city like Boston, in a city that that's economy is jamming, right? You really do need more construction to make things work up. New construction is not the solution for Detroit's problems, right? It's the reverse, right? What Detroit needs is better schools and more safety. And so a, a supply-oriented strategy is unlikely to be the right one. It would be unfair to just say rent control. So let me say rent control, but the caveat being a more liberal zoning policy to go with it. Clarify. Uh, I guess what I mean is rent control is a way that you, and we see this happening around the country, or at least I read about it. 
you're not encouraging folks to take care of the buildings. You're not encouraging owners to build more supply. But if you were to allow more density, but then put that in as kind of a trade-off, would that be over or under? You know, as an economist, I don't like price controls much in any place. I mean, I think there's so many unfortunate side consequences of of rent control. It's hard for me to ever imagine that's a particularly sensible policy. If you told me that what you were going to do is to allow more liberal zoning policy and then charge developers for adding density, and then you're going to take that money and throw it into some sensible housing-related pot, I'm game for that. But I would rather not see it happen in terms of the the rent regulation. I'd rather see it, let's say, pay for more housing vouchers or pay for pre-K programs in high-poverty neighborhoods or do something else to to make the city better in a more direct and targeted fashion. Four-year college degrees. Uh, (laughs) Aren't I in that business? (laughs) (laughs) We can take a pass. Um, So it's clearly not for everyone. And I I think I said earlier that I would like to see America do a better job on vocational training. But it remains true that college degrees are are correlates at at the individual and at the local level of very good things. I mean, if you want to understand why Seattle and Detroit look different, the fact that, you know, about 50% of Seattle's adults have college degrees and about, I don't know, 13, 14% of Detroit's adults have college degrees, uh, that goes, you know, so for all the flaws of my industry, and we have many, it's not something I would, I would I'd put in the middle, shall we say, with okay. it, instead, of, instead of specifically calling it uh, Appropriately rated. Appropriately then. rated. Right. How about government-backed mortgages? Like, oh, FH, uh, like FHA? Yeah. Like I mean, FHA, FHA is a little bit more targeted towards poor people. I, I think it's Fanny hard Fanny. to look at the, and Fannie and Freddie, I think it's hard to look at the government policy of subsidizing mortgages in different ways and uh, not think, you know, why don't we just say no to this? I mean, there are all the sort of financial risks that are built into the situation of having government guarantees. But it's also true that like, when for those of us who remember vividly the pain of 2007, 2008, when, you know, the supposed ownership society had turned into a default society, you know, it's not true that the government was responsible for the boom and bust, right? Individual over-optimism is probably the larger uh, explanation. But it's certainly true the government was there handing people the chips, right? I mean, the government was there telling them that, you know, we're going we're gonna to help you borrow to make huge leverage bets on the housing cycle. Isn't that, isn't that great public <laughs> policy? And I also, you know, I, I don't see much reason why you want to subsidize people to live in larger homes. I don't think in our world of you know, uh, 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 of worrying about carbon emissions. I don't think that makes much sense. I certainly don't think that you want to subsidize people to move out of urban apartments that are rented into suburban homes Mm. that are owned. So I I don't see much to like about uh, this policy. Uh, How about electric cars? Uh, I'm going to put it in the middle. The, the uh, you know, it's it's partially about what's going to happen in the future. There's lots of promise in this technology. One thing I will say that I worried a little bit about this, uh, and I have a little bit of the algebra on this in my paper called The Supply of Environmentalism, uh, which is that electric cars reduce the cost of driving, the marginal cost of driving by a lot. In fact, even by more than they do the environmental uh, cost of doing it. And by moving the marginal cost of driving down a lot, you may well induce people to drive more. That's always true of higher miles per gallon cars that you have this, this rebound effect of inducing people to drive more. But the, the effect is much larger for, for electric cars. And so we should probably worry a little bit about that. That being said, you know, it's hard not to like technologies that offer the promise in the long run of moving towards fewer carbon emissions in, in transportation. Yeah. And I, and I think also just from an econ- economic stance, uh, there are some cities that are taxing it or uh, because essentially, if you have a higher miles per gallon, or if you are truly all electric, there is no gas tax uh, revenue. So that's and that's what's been fueling just maintaining the infrastructure as well. So from the economics side of it, final round here. 
The Olympics uh, slash Boston 2024. What was? (laughs) (laughs) This was a a triumph of voters rising up against great government folly. (laughs) Uh, And part of the reason why I I was so happy to see the Olympics fall fall apart, and I want no part of the Olympics in in Boston ever, is that public capacity is limited. And if our public officials are worried all about the Olympics, they're not going to be worried about, you know, creating better schools in, in uh, Roxbury. They're not going to be worried about making it easier for, for scrappy, you know, grocery stores to start in, in Dudley Square. You know, we need to focus on the real needs of, of the people, not on some flashy thing. And you cannot say that Boston lacks exciting sporting events. We're, we're, not, we're not starting in a, a, you know, a paucity of these things. See, I thought it would really spur uh, improvements to our transportation system, that absent a event like that with a deadline just will be continuously pushed into the future. It's, you know, people, the, the one case where I, people have made a strong case where this actually looked, looked good is in Barcelona which started from a fairly low level and, you know, had a fairly sensible government involvement. I think most of the other time, it, it, it's very hard to think that these things actually look, look good. How about mandated affordable housing requirements? I don't know of any case in which you impose a tax on the supply of something and you make it cheaper, okay? And fundamentally, mandated affordable housing requirements are an added tax on development. That being said, if you tell me that, that the price of going up is you're going to require some affordable units, and that's a political bargain. I'm not going to say no to that. Um, But I also dislike the sense in which this separate class of affordable housing units lets politicians off the hook. Real affordability means that any person can come to Boston or New York or San Francisco and rent an apartment for a reasonable price. It doesn't mean that there's some small number of units that the lucky people who happen to be lotteried into it can get. Right. So, uh, you know, in, in it was maybe a decade ago in, in my hometown paper, they were celebrating the construction of, wait for it, one affordable housing unit, hmm. as if this was somehow or other a triumph for, you know, making making housing affordable for ordinary people. So I, I really think that this separate class is is an unfortunate thing. We really need to ask ourselves, what can just an ordinary person get if they come to the city? Agree. All right. Last one over here. Uh, floor area ratios. Uh, Sorry, man, mandated. Man, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of pro uh, meters and square feet too. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not, I'm not against measuring FARs. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think most of the time it's used to artificially restrain supply in a way that I think is harmful. Uh, no, no difference than, than anything else. This has been great. We really appreciate you taking the time. Professor Glazer, are you on Twitter or... I've got nothing to say that I can say meaningfully in that few number of characters. <laughs> okay. yeah. Like it. Well, thank you again. If someone does want to potentially reach out, get in touch, is there a way to, they can do that? Well, let me, let me propose something. There is a free Harvard X course called Cities X, which is also a YouTube channel. We have about 180 videos. Half of them are myself talking direct to camera. Half of them are me interviewing people like the current head of the MBTA, Steve Poftak or Joe Curtitone, mayor, mayor of Somerville. So if you want more urban content, it's all there and it's all free. Excellent. Awesome. And what was awesome. that YouTube channel again? Cities X. Cities X. Cool. Awesome. Thanks very Thanks, much. Professor. Thank you. Thank Take you. care.